Good morning, it's good to be with you guys. Will you turn in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the book of Jeremiah? I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 17 for us. I'll pray for us and we'll begin. This is God's Word. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. And I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass, if they, if they will diligently learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name, as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people." But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and and destroy it, declares the Lord. Will you guys pray with me? Father, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to speak of them? Who is sufficient to walk in them? Who, Who among us don't already know just from the very beginning of reading it that we're an enemy of your people and an enemy of you? So it's a hard word to hear. We don't automatically feel like we deserve, we don't ever feel like we deserve compassion from you. So we want to hear from your word this morning and be strengthened, be drawn up, be brought into your ways and be brought into the midst of your people. We trust you to do that in your name. Amen. Well, we're continuing this morning this sort of back and forth, right? And we'll really be continuing it throughout the entirety of the book of Jeremiah, this kind of dialogue that's going on between the Lord and Jeremiah. And we heard from David last week that the Lord, he holds sway over the fortunes of all of the earth. And there's no man that can look to him and complain to him about the way that he directs providence. Nobody can stand and respond to God. We hear that in Jeremiah. We hear it in the book of Job. Paul tells us in Romans that that's true. We hear it over and over and over again. But David mentioned last week that chapter 12 feels like it kind of takes a turn at some point, right? And it happens in verse 14, that first verse that I read this morning. God has been saying, hey, Jeremiah, if you can't run with, if you run with men and they exhaust you, how are you going to run with horses? I hate the way that my people act. But then all of a sudden in verse 14, he starts talking differently, right? It sounds a little different. God has let foreigners ravage Israel, but now we see something new. It isn't as if God has been unfaithful to his covenant with his people. In fact, He's always been faithful. His covenant faithfulness is flawless. And he's going to continue to be that way. But he's going to pluck his people up. And anybody that had destroyed Judah or made Judah suffer, they're going to suffer too. And that's what verse 14 says. And it says that Judah will be taken from the clutches of their enemies. Now, if that's the only thing that was said today, we would get it, right? That sounds like a really normal biblical theme. God punishes people that punish his people. That sounds like Psalm 137 to me. That begins, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And then it closes by saying, 
O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you. But the problem is that's the opposite of what the Lord says to Jeremiah in chapter 12. Chapter 15, in verse 15, things take a turn. Instead, God extends an offer, and it's an offer of compassion that almost feels offensive, right? He offers a kind of grace that almost feels unjust. He says that if the neighbors of Judah, the people that have punished Judah, have made Judah suffer so much, if they repent and walk in the Lord's ways... He'll be gracious to them. He'll show them mercy. That's one of two things. That's either brutal ruthlessness on the part of God, or that's a kind of faithfulness that we aren't prepared to expect. But we've got we to interpret it somehow. Do you understand that? God is either ruthless here by being good to the people that have punished His people, or He's being faithful in a way that we don't expect. The question I'm just kind of circling around in the introduction, it's the only question we'll ask all morning, is just, is just simply this question. How does God seemingly forsake his people and now seem willing to show mercy to their enemies? How does he do that and remain just? Now, I want to answer that question with uh, just one piece of theology. And that's all we're going to talk about all morning, just one piece of theology. And it's actually a piece of theology that everyone in this room says every single week, but we kind of gloss over it. And I actually kind of feel responsible for us glossing over it, because I generally lead you in it. It's the Apostles' Creed. One of the things that we say in the Apostles' Creed is that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of his father. Now that sounds sort of ordinary, right? Kind of quotidian, sort of like basic and not that powerful. It doesn't sound like it has that much force. It sounds like it's the kind of thing that's completely obvious because look around, right? You don't see Jesus. Where is he? He's in heaven. And where's the force in that? But I think when we miss it, we do miss one of the most critical elements of the work of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Now, the small account of Jesus's ascension, and I think in what I'm saying is I think in talking about the ascension, we're going to answer this question that's coming at us from Jeremiah. Um, When you find the account of the ascension, you'll find that in the first chapter of the book of Acts. David actually read it this morning in the call to worship. It's a short little account. And so maybe we feel immediately kind of relieved that we haven't made a bigger deal about the ascension than we do because it doesn't take up that much room in the Bible. And it actually doesn't, hasn't taken up that much room in church history. Very few people have talked about it much. But Jesus has, of course, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, he's died, he's risen from the grave, He's seen a number of his disciples, and he's speaking to them. Now, wonderful, unbelievable, amazing things have happened in front of these disciples, right? They've seen Jesus die and rise again from the grave. They've seen him open the eyes of the blind, make the mute speak, make the lame walk again. They've seen him do unbelievable things. And so they ask the totally 
perfectly obvious and realistic question. Lord, are you now at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answers the question, but he does it in a way that's sort of dodgy. He says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed on his own authority. Then he says what David read in the call to worship. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of, earth, the, end of the earth. I take that to actually be a simple yes to the question that the disciples asked. Jesus actually is yes, emphatically yes, restoring the kingdom to Israel, but he ain't doing it in a way that anybody's going to expect. But then Jesus, he ascends. He literally bodily lifts off the ground and goes up into a cloud, and he's flanked by two cherubim. And he ascends into heaven. And then that's it. That's all you get. The next thing you hear about is what we heard about this morning. The Holy Spirit falls and the world begins to get turned upside down by the disciples. But Jesus is gone. I think that Jesus' ascension connects all of his work, connects his work to the destiny of the human race. Now, you could say that about every piece of his work along the way, right? You could say Jesus dies in order to turn his father's wrath away from our sin. He rises from the grave in order to transform the world and give us new life. But the ascension shows us that the climax of all that comes when Jesus, the priest king, and the second Adam fulfills the work that the first Adam did not fulfill but was intended to, and he takes dominion over the world. That's a mouthful. I know it is. And this is where things get kind of tricky, right? Because what I'm saying is, it's Jesus that ascended. It's Jesus of Nazareth that ascended. And I'm saying that when he ascended and took his seat at the right hand of his father, that means he rules over the world. That means that the one who was born in a barn to a carpenter and a virgin, the one who was raised in a backwater town in Israel, the one who called his disciples to do their ministries without a dime in their pockets, the one who ate with sinners and prostitutes, the one who bade tax collectors to come follow him, and the one who died the most shameful death in human history, it's him that rules over the whole world. But he rules up there with his body and memory intact, which means he remembers the way that it felt to sit upon a rocky well and talk to a Samaritan woman. It means he remembers the way it felt for a woman to bathe and anoint and clean his feet with her hair. He can remember the way his vocal cords trembled when he shouted, Lazarus, come forth, and he saw his friend's former corpse stagger out of a tomb. Jesus is God. That's a remarkable thing to say about a human being. But it's actually doubly remarkable of a thing to say about God. That means that God an act does and acts in a way that Jesus would have done and act. 
And so that means that the world is turned upside down. And the God who pronounces the unthinkable in Jeremiah chapter 12 can do that because that's Jesus. The God who can extend mercy to enemies can only be one person. It has to be Jesus. And that's good news for you. And the reason that it's good news for you is that no one in this room has any hope apart from a God that can be that compassionate. A God that's willing to be merciful to the enemies of his people. Now, if that weren't true, pretend with me for a moment if that weren't, that, that weren't true. That God couldn't be merciful to his enemies, to the enemies of his people. Christianity would have never gotten off the ground. Right, And you wouldn't have a New Testament to read. Because there was an enemy of God whose name was Saul that was killing God's people left and right. And God was willing to pluck out that man and be compassionate to him. And Jesus built him up in the midst of his people and gave him a new name called Paul. And the world, of course, was never the same. So here's the reality about Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. All of us need Jesus, the priest king, to rule over this world. And all of us need this passage because all of us need a God gracious enough to pardon their enemies because that's what we all are. And you, I think, actually know that. I mean, I think you know that you're that kind of enemy of God. I know that you're like me and you hide it in different ways, and you hide the way that you choose idols over God. But at the end of the day, you know that you're his enemy. But I think I also know something else about you, and that's this. That if the Spirit's inside you, you want to ascend too. You don't want to return to your idols in the way that a dog returns to his vomit. You don't want to do the things that you wish you didn't do, like Paul says in Romans 7. And here's the other thing. Jesus wants you to ascend too. He wants to draw us all up to heaven where he is. He wants to exalt us and take a train of the elect all the way to glory, bodies, memories intact. But here's the thing. Jesus's ascension, it actually started when he was lifted off the earth by two big beams suspended between heaven and earth, just like Absalom. But this is great David's greater son. And when he was lifted up, like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, it brought healing. And his suspension between heaven and earth, it was only temporary because his father was pleased rather than grieved with his death. And so he ascended again from the grave and he departs from us and he ascends to his enthronement. And in that fulfills the kingdom that he promised us all. So the cross, rather than being the worst humiliation and shame, sets in motion Jesus' ultimate glory. It's to his eternal glory that he suffered for you. And when he's lifted up on the cross, the Father is glorifying him. And that's what it takes for him to, for God to be compassionate to his enemies. But it also sorts to start to make sense of some of Jesus' most perplexing statements, right? The paradoxes that we can't seem to understand. Like when Jesus says things like, those that humble themselves, they'll be exalted. 
And when we hear that, our minds just ricochet, right? And if we get it at all, we think it's a two-step process. Like, first I'm going to humble myself, and then later on, Jesus is going to exalt me. But the brutal reality is, it's probably not two steps. The lower you go, the higher you go. That's what it meant for Jesus. And that's hard news to hear, but the good news is, is that no one can descend lower than Jesus had to descend. And you could say that all those little things that I just mentioned, those are like the ways of Jesus, like you hear in Jeremiah chapter 12. And those kind of become the ways of God's people. And learning them and believing them and walking in them takes away that enemy status that we were so terrified that we had in Jeremiah 12. And God says right there, that's what it looks like to be built up among my people. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you that this is true, that it's your son that rules the world. It's your son that was willing to suffer and die for us, your people, that it's your son. You could, we could say that his entire work, the great conglomeration of, of events that begins at the cross, all of that is his ascension. And so, Father, we ask that you would make us more like him, that we would be willing to bear the cross that he bore and so that we can ascend in the way that he can. We trust you to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.